me. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, if you were to look at the topic and points of my sermon tonight, uh, you might say that the sermon might be covering a very clear-cut, familiar, if not somewhat astounding truth about uh, Jesus Christ that the Church of Jesus Christ has always professed. The two natures of Christ. He's divine and he's human. It's indeed what John speaks about when he speaks concerning the Son of God. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. God became man. And if someone was to ask you who Jesus Christ is, you might say many things. You might say, well, he's my Savior. You might say he is the Son of God. You might say that he is the one who rose from the dead. Uh, you might say that uh, he was born in Bethlehem. You might say that he is Lord. But you might also say, and one ought to say, uh, that Christ is both human and divine. It's a good thing to be able to answer the question, who is Jesus Christ? Jesus, of course, asked that of Peter once upon a time, and he said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. To say that Jesus is both human and divine seems to answer the question quite nicely and we could just pack up, sing the doxology and go home. Why then is that confessional statement about Christ and the Son so fleshed out like it is in this article? And as it is, as we find in the Athanasian Creed, why not simply say, like the title in essence says, Jesus is true God and true man, and be done with it. Well, the reason for that is especially a historical one. We know a lot of times that people will say one thing and mean another thing entirely from what somebody else might say when they use the same word. What one person means when they say something can be so different from what another person says or means when he says the same thing. An article like this one really shows one of the reasons why a church like ours has confessions. It's not meant to make things more complicated. That's not the design. In fact, this whole confession was written initially as to be a testimony to the world. So people in the world, particularly the king of Spain, could understand where the Reformed church was coming from. No, it's not meant to make things more complicated. It's meant to make things more clear. It's, it isn't supposed to be frustrating us. It's meant to satisfy us. It's not to, to keep us confused, but to enlighten so that we can live out our faith in accordance with biblical truth. The confession wants to do is to make more clear to the world what it is that the church believes when it says that Jesus is both God and man. And why that's important. So we're going to take a look tonight for a few moments at what the scriptures have to say about that question. How people have responded to what the scriptures have said historically. And then the practical reasons for believing as we do. Now those points that we're going to be looking at certainly are going to in the end tell us that yes indeed we are confessing uh, the true natures of Christ as being divine and human. 
but you're going to find in the flow of the sermon that we're going to be hitting the scriptures on this point in John chapter 1. Uh, we're also going to look at how people have responded to that thought historically and then also see the practical element of all of this. So we first of all want to look at that statement from John chapter 1 verse 14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now when John writes the word, what he means as we see as we read backwards as well as forwards into the scriptures, we see that it means the divine. Early on in the passage, in the first few verses of this gospel, John writes that the word was with God. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He had the divine attributes of creator, because nothing was made that was made apart from him, and he had that divine attribute of eternality, uh, where in the beginning he was. And he was God. It would have made no sense to believe that John was saying a God here, because that wasn't the offense of the Jews later on in this gospel. The offense of the Jews later in this gospel, in chapter 5, was not that Jesus said he was a God, but that he claimed to be God, the God, the one and only God. That's the offense. We then read that the Word became flesh. Now, flesh means humanity here. It doesn't mean that he took on some sort of earthly, mere earthly substance. Of some animal or some other creature. Flesh here refers to his humanity, his, his human nature. And become does not mean he turned into man, or that he substituted his divinity for his humanity, that he was no longer God, but was now only man. Became here is a historical usage. At a certain point in the fullness of time, the divine word took on humanity. And in that way, he literally tabernacled among us. He tented among us. As God in his ways back in the Old Testament days, had tabernacled with his people. So, Jesus Christ is God and man. Why then such an elaborate confession? Well, that all arises out of history that cannot be and should not be forgotten. We live in a world, of course, that thinks that the only thing that matters is right now. And the Christian Confession never allows for that, of course, particularly when it comes to biblical history. Our faith for today is based on what God has done greatly in the past. But the reason why we have come to these statements about answering the question, what does it mean for Jesus to be the Son of God, to be God and man, 
is because of the ways in which a lot of times what happened over the course of time following Christ's coming, that people misunderstood what that meant. They would answer in a variety of ways about what it meant that Jesus Christ was God and man. Some would say that it meant that he was half God and half man. Others said, no, Christ is two-thirds man and one-third God. Others would say, no, 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 what's happened is, is that Jesus Christ, or that the Son of God, absorbed as a human, or, or excuse me, I should put it this way, the Son of God absorbed the humanity of Jesus with the divinity taking precedence. He's kind of a blend with the divine taking predominance. Or do we mean that he had one will, that he just had a divine will, but not a human will? Do we mean that attributes of the divine can be like, let's say, his the fact that he could be everywhere at once can be communicated into the human attributes of Christ? Are we saying that Christ is some sort of, you know, like a comic book Superman? Clark Kent on one side, and then his S on the chest on the other side. Some kind of schizophrenic where he takes on one role one moment, and then takes on another role the next moment. Well, the Belgian Confession wants to do what the church historically over time sought to do, it's on to steer clear, or steer us in the clear, into the true paths that the Athanasian Creed and, and the Council of Chalcedon back in 1100 years before this uh, sought to take up as they took up these questions. Back in the days of the Athanasian Creed and the Council of Chalcedon back in 451, church leaders knew that if, if they didn't get this right, if they didn't properly resolve this issue as to who Jesus was, that that was going to have an, an impact. See, that's the relevance of it, right? It was going to have an impact on the way that people were going to approach him, how they were going to honor him, and how they were going to serve him. And in fact, how they would be able uh, themselves even to be saved or not. So it's very important to understand who he was. The reason that they had to get together at this time, like with most confessional actions, was not to make things more, you know, muddy, but to make things more clear. It was to respond to various errors that had arisen in the church in response to passages like the one that we're looking at here from John chapter 1, verse 14. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. One of those errors was called Nestorianism which taught that Jesus was actually two persons and not one. Yes, he was human and divine, but what, what we mean is that Jesus Christ was, as it were, two different persons. He was a multiple personality. He was a Jekyll and Hyde. He was a Clark Kent and Superman. He was a schizophrenic of sorts. One of the problems with that view, of course, is with every error about Christ's makeup, is that it takes away Christ's ability to identify 
with his people as someone who could sympathize with us like Hebrews would tell us. Who could sympathize with us as humans in the fullest sense of the term of human. We are one person and so is Jesus Christ. Now from the divine side of things, it makes the Son to be a different person than he was before his incarnation. The incarnation did not change the Son's personality. He didn't become a different person. He didn't add a personality to the one that he already had. His divine personhood didn't change, nor was it lost. He did not become different in personality. He simply assumed a human nature. He doesn't become a monster by becoming, you know, dual in person. He, he becomes like us. Sin excluded. But his divinity is not altered in any way, shape, or form. And that's what some people thought was happening. And that, that's just, you can't think that way. And that's why the confession mentions that as a person, he remains one. And, and his natures in this way are not separate from that oneness. They together comprise the one person, Jesus Christ. Just like you and I are, are, are not two persons because we have a soul and a body. You know, so also, Jesus does not become two persons because he has a divine and human nature. He's like us. And that's important. Another area was by the, they were called the Eutychians, where they were called the Monophysites, which said that he just had one nature. That's what that meant. Monophysite is this one nature. Who said that at the incarnation, the, the human was absorbed into the divine. So instead of two persons, there's one Nature. There's this mixture of the human and divine, kind of like you know, you're, you're you're mixing chocolate and vanilla together into a swirl, into this blend. Well, then you don't have chocolate and vanilla anymore, do you? You've got something else, and you can see then that that wouldn't do either. But that's what people were saying. But if the human can be absorbed into the divine then we lose the humanity of Christ that we need. And we lose the distinction or distinctiveness of the divine, which we also need. Because now creature and creator are blurred like that chocolate and vanilla swirl. Humanity is lost. And again, you have some monstrous creature, and we can't identify with that. And then you have this deity that's so blended that it denies his deity at all. Christ, Christ, Christ is not some, someone then who can sympathize with us again because he's not like us. He's not like us. And because his divinity's been blended, the very deity of Christ is denounced. Who are you to honor him? And you no longer have the word become flesh. And that's, just, that's a reality. That, that was something that the church had to, had to purge. It had to, make, it had to make a clear trumpet blow about that. 
That's what Chalcedon called the, the confusion and the changeability of the natures. Right? If you come away, and I, I hope tonight you don't come away confused, but, but if you come away wondering what it is that you ought to be believing about stuff, you've got to be careful about that because that's not what the church needs to be doing. It needs to be making a clear, clarion call of what's true and what's right. That's what Chalcedon did long ago. And that's what the, the confession is recapitulating. It's, it's reminding us of this. These natures retain their own distinctive property. And as our confession states, how important it is that he is truly God in order to conquer death by his power and true man that he might die for us in the weakness of his flesh. You know, that, that's what it comes down to. It gets technical in one way, but it has relevance in another. He's got to be true God to have the power to conquer death. He needs to be true man so that he might die for us in the weakness of his flesh. And that also helps us to understand why the scriptures can tell us that Christ knew what was in the heart of man. Right? Or that he could that he could be crucified as the Lord of glory by the spilling of his blood as man, grow in wisdom and stature, but at the same time say, before Abraham was, I am. And be one who is before all things, and in him all things consist. There was another error that was Apollinarius. And he said that Jesus was human in body and soul, but not in spirit. And he had this mentality that said, well, man's a creature in body, soul, and spirit, but that Jesus was human in body and soul, but divine in spirit. So then you see what where that goes. This isn't Jesus, the Jesus of John 1.14. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. At best, he's two, two-thirds man, and at best, he's one-third God. He's some monstrous creature again with whom we cannot identify and whom we cannot worship. His natures are split to try to solve the mystery of who he is. And and Chalcedon and our confession avoid that. The natures of Christ, both human and divine, are, are indivisible. Two natures united in a single person. There was another era that came in the 6th century. And people were saying, well, Christ has a divine nature and a human nature, but he only has one will. He's got a divine one. He doesn't have a human will. As humans, then, we cannot, again, identify with that kind of a Christ because we have human will. You take that away from Christ, he's not human like we are. We can't identify with him that way. He can't identify with us. He cannot be the one who has gone through all that we have and can sympathize with us if he doesn't have a will like us. That's just not, that's just not the Jesus. It's just not the, the Christ of the Scripture. Another concern for Debray and Chalcedon was the error of what was called changeability in the natures of Christ and how that affected communion celebration. The celebration of the Lord's Supper. If you believe that the natures of Christ can be 
intermingled, interchanged, then you believe that the humanity of Christ could be in heaven and on earth at the same time. Now we confess that he is sitting at the right hand of God. But if you believe that he can be there and he can be here at the same time, that can lead to a belief that the flesh and blood of the Lord can be found in, under, and with the bread in a communion supper, or be miraculously identified with the bread at the mass. Yet the Bible teaches us that Christ in his humanity is seated at the right hand of God. That's our, that's our hope and comfort as Christians. Again, our identity with him is questioned. And the uniqueness of his atoning death is thrown up into the air. Christ's humanity remains purely human. It takes on immortality, we say in our confession, and that's true from the Word of God, but nonetheless, his humanity did not change. His humanity didn't change. He's still truly human. And so to point out the practicality of all that, if we go from that passage from John 1 and we look at what has happened in the past that had to be addressed, and to point out the practicality of all that, our salvation, we even make that confession, our salvation and resurrection depend on the reality of his body. That's how relevant this is. Our eternity, our relationship with God depends on the reality of his body. If it changes, essentially, our salvation and resurrection are at stake because then he's not human like we are. To our comfort, Jesus Christ is as fully human today as he was when he walked on the earth. And that's one of the comforts that we receive at communion. Not that his body comes down to earth, right? But that in a spiritual way where we're caught up and brought up into heaven as it were, where Jesus is. Which is what worship is doing, right? When we're worshiping, we're worshiping in heavenly places. We're reminded that his heavenly enthronement is for our encouragement for this very day in which we live, and his heavenly enthronement is, is our encouragement for the life everlasting as humans in him. Yeah, you know, if, if all we could celebrate was just Christ's coming, and his humility, and not be able to also celebrate his subsequent enthronement, it would sure make very little of the birth of Christ long ago. But that humility did lead to that exaltation. And it enables us, when we understand the makeup of Christ, and it, here's the thing, right? We, we need to be awestruck at the makeup of Christ. And, and that they're benefits to us. And then we have to be careful, right, to not misunderstand that make makeup. We don't want to take history for granted that way, that by God's providence, by God's spirit, he kept people and church leaders set up so that they would understand the scriptures rightly so we wouldn't get 
uh, we wouldn't be misunderstanding Jesus and not only lose out on the, the, the awe in terms of our response to his makeup, but the marvels of what he's done for us because of that makeup. And so it's my prayer that when we sing a song here in just a moment, like beautiful Savior, King of creation, Son of God, Son of Man, we might receive the encouragement that comes when we realize that Jesus Christ is our powerful God who destroys death and whose death and resurrection as a man brings the hope and reality of salvation and resurrection to our life today and for eternity. That's what we need. And that's the gospel we receive. And that's the good news we receive when we understand that properly that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Amen. Let's take a moment to respond in prayer, shall we? Heavenly Father, we are grateful for your word that reminds us of the importance of Jesus Christ being truly God and truly man. And uh, we get into some fine distinctions we know, and they can sometimes